This is the Ministers of the New Covenant radio broadcast. We come to you in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of the Most High Yahweh. Tune in each week to hear teachings directly from Scripture, focused upon believing in the Father, His Son, and the holy and righteous law of our Creator. At the end of this broadcast, we will give you the web address whereby you may contact us for further scriptural information. Well, it's great to be back with you for another evening to study our Father's Word, and we're going to get right into it this evening. We've been talking about what I believe is a tradition of man that the Father and the Son in Scripture, Yahweh the Father and Yeshua the Son, are one and the same person or have one and the same name. I believe that's a tradition of man. And we've been talking about that for the past couple of weeks. And last week we left off at Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 through 6. And I dealt with that in detail, but I didn't have enough time to get into one more aspect, or actually two more aspects of that particular text. Now, I want to start this lesson off by going back to Jeremiah 23, 5-6. You can turn there if you have your Bible. And I want to note something that very few people know about, at least in my studies and in my search for the truth over the past 20 years. I actually ran across this myself while studying on Jeremiah 23, 5-6 one morning. And when I ran across it, it amazed me because I had never heard nor read anyone else mention it. That doesn't mean I'm the first person to find this out. I'm just saying I personally had never heard or read anyone mention it. And I have a boatload of commentaries in my office here. And I was surprised that I'd never heard anybody even comment or even breathe upon it, you know, even talk about it. But it was in the Septuagint translation. Now, the Septuagint, if you're not familiar with it, is the Greek translation of the Tanakh. The Tanakh is the Hebrew scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures were originally written in the Hebrew language. Um, beginning in about 250 BC, uh, the Hebrew Tanakh began to be translated into the Greek language, um, predominantly or primarily, for Israelites that lived in around the area of Alexandria, Egypt, whose common language was Greek. And so as the tradition goes, and you can look up Septuagint in any good Bible dictionary, and as the tradition goes, there were approximately around 70 elders, 70 men who knew the Hebrew and the Greek language that made the translation. And if you read the New Testament, this is the interesting thing, if you read the New Testament, you'll know that many times in the New Testament, an author will quote verbatim a text from the Old Testament. And if you're reading, let's say, like a King James Bible, you'll read the quote from the New Testament, and then you'll, by the reference, go back to the Old Testament, and you'll see that the two are not really the same. Not necessarily that the meaning is different all the time, but it's not a direct quote. When in reality, it is a direct quote, but the author in the New Testament is quoting from the Greek Septuagint, or at least a Hebrew translation that the Greek Septuagint was translated from. So the Septuagint is very important, and in the Septuagint translation of Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, 
it says that the name of the righteous branch, it doesn't call the name of the righteous branch Yahweh Zidkenu or Yahweh our righteousness, which we covered in the last lesson. It says, this is the name whereby he shall be called Josedek among the prophets. Now, at first glance, that seems to be contradictory to the Hebrew text of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, 5-6, this is the name wherewith he shall be called Yahweh Zidkenu, Yahweh our righteousness. Septuagint, Josedek among the prophets. However, when you have a correct understanding, there's no contradiction. There is no contradiction. The Septuagint did not get it wrong. When you correctly understand what Jeremiah 23 is meaning. Josedek, that name Josedek, is a Greek derivative, or we might be better to say Yosedek, because the J, which was the last letter to be added even to the English alphabet, did not even really come into existence in alphabets until maybe as early as the late 1500s AD, possibly not even that early, because the 1611 King James Version still uses the letter I for names that now begin with J in our Bibles. So we might be better to say Yosedek among the prophets, but that is a Greek derivative of the Hebrew name Yehozedek. Now, Yehozedek means Yahweh is righteous. This lets us know that the Septuagint translators that began to translate the Tanakh into Greek, from Hebrew to Greek, these translators did not view Jeremiah 23, 5-6 as giving the sacred name Yahweh to be the personal name of the Messiah. That's not how they understood Jeremiah 23, 5-6. They rather understood it in a very similar way that we understand the name that I covered last week, Emmanuel. Remember, Emmanuel in Isaiah 7, 14 means Elohim is with us. It's describing the work of the Messiah. And it's the same thing with Jehozadak or Yosadak. It is another secondary name for the Messiah that proclaims the righteousness of Yahweh his Father. Just like Emmanuel. When we say that name, it proclaims that through Yeshua, Elohim, the Mighty One, the Almighty, was with us in a very mighty way. Well, Jehozadak is another secondary name for the Messiah that proclaims that Yahweh is our righteousness. Now, you can find more detail. As I mentioned last week, I've got much more detail in my written paper on my website about Jeremiah 23, 5-6 that I'll be glad to send to anybody free of charge. It won't cost you a dime. I can send it to anybody that contacts me with the contact info at the end of this broadcast. Before we move on from Jeremiah 23... 5 through 6, I have to say this. When you read that text, Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, where it talks about in his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. I actually believe Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, even though it is a messianic prophecy, it's one of those messianic prophecies that has yet to be fulfilled. Many messianic prophecies were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. Other messianic prophecies will not be fulfilled until the second coming of Christ. And if you look at Judah and Israel, 
no matter who you believe Judah and Israel are, and that's another subject in and of itself, they're not dwelling safely in the land that Yahweh gave to Abraham. Jeremiah 23 and 5 through 6 will be fulfilled at the second coming of the Messiah, and a secondary name for that Messiah, just like a secondary name at his first coming was Emmanuel, a secondary name for him will be Jehozadak among the prophets, meaning Yahweh is our righteousness. So let's move on from there and get into some fresh passages now from last week. Acts chapter 7, verse 59. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 7, verse 59. Now this is another text that I've seen in an attempt to teach that the Messiah is really Yahweh the Father. And I don't believe that. I believe that Yahweh the Father, or as is commonly called God the Father, is separate from Yeshua the Son. I don't believe they're the same person. I believe they're two different persons. But nevertheless, I've heard this text used to teach that the Messiah is really Father Yahweh. Or sometimes it's used to teach that where we read Jesus in Acts 7.59 which, remember, Jesus is just an English derivative of our Hebrew Messiah's original name. Let me I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but let me just say that when our Messiah walked the earth, no one ever called him Jesus. If you were to holler out Jesus to him, he would not turn around. That was not his name. That wasn't the name that the angel gave him from Yahweh to Miriam and Joseph in Matthew 1. It wasn't what his mother named him. His name was Yeshua. And it's very easy if you have a Bible dictionary or a, a concordance or any kind of study tools. If you look up the name Jesus, you'll see that the original Hebrew or Aramaic name is Yeshua, which means he will save or salvation. And so I think that we should honor our Master and Savior by calling him the name that everybody else called him when he walked the earth. I think that that's what we should do. But where we read in Acts 7.59, Jesus or Yeshua, some people think that it should actually say Yahweh. And I don't believe that is the case, and I want to explain that in this next segment. In the King James Version of this verse, we read that Stephen, who was being stoned, if you read the whole chapter, of Acts 6 and 7, you'll see that Stephen stood up to the religious leaders and he's trying to help them, but they can't take what he's telling them and they gnash upon him with their teeth, which means they get angry at him and they begin to throw stones at Stephen. And in the King James Version in Acts 7.59, it says that Stephen was calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, oneness proponents, people who believe that the Father and the Son are really one and the same person and he just shows up in different modes or manifestations, they say that Jesus is God, the Father. And they use this text to teach that because the text says that the way Stephen called upon God was by saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Once again, the KJV reads... Stephen was calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, the first thing I need to point out is that the word God 
in Acts 7.59 is an addition to the text by the English translators. Now, if you're reading the King James Version, there's a way that you can know this. And that is this. The word God will be written in italics. And the words surrounding that word God will not be in italics. The reason that that is is because in the King James Version and in other versions of your English Bible, sometimes the translators will add in words that do not exist in the manuscript from which they're pulling to try to make the sentence flow or to maybe add more clarity to the sentence. I'm not saying that that's always a bad thing. I think sometimes the addition of words in order to clarify, as long as the meaning is still kept, is fine. But in this case, they've added in a word that thwarts or corrupts the original meaning of the text. The Greek word that is commonly translated into English as God is the Greek word theos. That's the Greek word that means mighty one, strength. But it is not, theos is not in Acts 7.59 in the Greek New Testament. And this is why translations like the one I use, the HCSB, or a very scholarly translation, the New American Standard Bible, and many other translations, do not contain it into English. So, if you have a KJV, get that out and then pull out an NIV or an NASB or an RSV, and you'll see that those other translations will not have the word God in Acts 7.59 because it does not exist. Theos, the Greek counterpart, does not exist in the manuscript. Now, I've told this to some people in the past, and yet I have heard them continue to quote the passage wrongly using the word God or Almighty. Now, let me say this to that. I understand that sometimes we are ignorant to the facts. Sometimes we do not have everything figured out because we're still in the process of studying a text. I can understand somebody misquoting the text, how it's written in the KJV, because they do not know the facts. But once you've come to the knowledge of the fact that God's not there, and yet you continue to quote that and just ignore what knowledge someone has tried to share to you, that can be very dangerous because you are then rejecting knowledge. It's one thing not to know. It's bad not to know, but it's worse to know and still not take heed. So I want to ask you, the listener tonight, to please look into this and not perpetrate, not continue on an erroneous quotation of the verse. The word God should not be there. That verse should not be quoted in that way. The King James Version is wrong in Acts 7.59. So instead, Stephen was calling out and saying, Master Yeshua or Lord Yeshua, receive my spirit. That's how the text should read. Now, upon reading this correctly, some still insist that Yeshua must be Yahweh because it is Yahweh who receives the spirits of men when they die. Now, I agree that Yahweh does receive the spirits of men at death. And even Yeshua, just before he died, he said this in Luke 23, 46. He said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. But 
Does this mean, does the fact that Yahweh receives the spirits of men that die, does this mean that Yeshua, the Son of Yahweh, only begotten, in his resurrected, glorified state, because remember, that's what state he's in now. When Stephen is calling out to Yeshua in Acts 7, he's in heaven. Yeshua is in heaven. He's resurrected from the dead. He's in a glorified, immortal, resurrected state. Does the fact that Yahweh receives spirits of men that die, does that automatically mean that Yeshua in his resurrected, glorified state does not receive the spirits of men? Well, not according to Acts 7.59. If we believe the Bible, Acts 7.59 will teach us that Stephen called out for Yeshua to receive his spirit. That's what the text says. Now, we can try to come up with ideologies and theologies of man and make the text say something that it doesn't. But the text says Stephen called out to the master Yeshua and said, Receive my spirit. So the conclusion should not be that Yeshua is Yahweh, nor that where we read Jesus in our English Bible, it really should say Yahweh based on zero textual evidence. Rather, the conclusion is that after the resurrection of Messiah, Yahweh gave Yeshua all authority in heaven and in earth, Matthew 28, 18. Now, Yeshua being given, notice Yahweh had to give that to him, Yeshua being given all authority in heaven and earth must include the authority to receive the spirits of those who have died, Acts 7.59. So we'll move on from there, and I think we can, yeah, we've got time to get to some more texts here. The next one we'll go to is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. And here's another text that is used to teach by many that the Messiah's name is not Yeshua, but rather Yahweh. But again, as is the case with each of these passages we're going to, tradition has blinded the minds of people's reasoning faculties. And I don't say that to be rude. I don't say that to be judgmental. I hope and pray that these lessons will help people come out of that tradition of man. So my goal is not to beat people down. My goal is to encourage them and build them up. But nonetheless, even though we have to speak in love, we have to speak the truth. The scripture says, speak the truth in love. So it's not one or the other. It's not either or. It's both. We speak the truth in love. And my mind at one time was blinded to the truth about this subject. I am certain that I'm blind now to the truth about other subjects. I haven't studied everything. I don't know everything. I don't have all knowledge. And we need to make sure that knowledge, the more that we gain, that it doesn't puff us up. We need to stay humble and recognize that we're all at different levels and we're growing in grace and in knowledge in the pace that Yahweh would have us to grow. Now, what we need to do in Ephesians 3.14 is back the truck up, slow down a little bit, and submit to understanding the scriptures in their original meaning or context. That's what we got to do. We have to read the text in its original context, rather than interpret the text through the grid of a man-made teaching. It's very easy to grow up in a denomination, and you are taught certain core things in denominationalism, and then you read the Bible and you interpret the Bible through the grid of your denomination, rather than reading the Bible through the lens of 
culture, linguistics, original context, what did it mean to the first hearers, who was the original author, who was the original audience. See, this is the proper way to interpret Scripture, not through the grid of the denominations of the Baptist, Pentecostal, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Roman Catholic, sacred name, Hebrew roots. We do not interpret through the grid of these sects that exist now in the Messianic faith or the Christian faith. We always go back to the original context. And some people that might be Hebrew roots might be saying, well, that's what the Hebrew roots does. Well, (laughs) let me tell you, Everybody has their traditions, including myself. And the man who thinks he has no tradition is the worst of all. The denomination or the group that thinks they have no tradition have the most. You have to be willing to admit, I am biased. I have a tendency to read what I want into the text. Please, Yahweh, help me read it how it was originally written. Ephesians 3.14 reads in the King James Version, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which correctly is Yeshua, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So once again it says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Master, our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, of whom the whole family of heaven and earth is named. Now, here we see that Paul is bowing down to the father of Yeshua the Messiah. Now, I want you to notice first that Paul speaks of two separate persons here. One is the father, and the second one is the master, Yeshua. The father of the master, Yeshua. That's two persons, not one. Now, Paul then goes on to say that the whole family of heaven and earth is named after the father. I bow my knees unto the Father of our Master Yeshua the Messiah, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So the whole family in heaven and earth is named after the Father. This goes back to what I said a couple weeks ago, I believe, maybe last week, that I believe that Yahweh is a family name. And in that sense, Yeshua, the angels... And all believers carry with them the name Yahweh. That does not mean that we then call the Messiah Yahweh as his personal name. And if we're going to say that Ephesians 3, 14 through 15, teaches that the Messiah's name is Yahweh, if we're going to use that reasoning, then we're going to have to also say that we should call all of the angels Yahweh, because they're part of the family, And I should also demand that other people call me Yahweh because I'm part of the family. But, of course, that is absurd because it misses the meaning of the text. The Apostle Paul is only making the point that all of us, in some way or fashion, are the children or the creation of Yahweh. And thus Yahweh is our Father and we're considered His family. And in this way, We have the family name. We're part of the family of Yahweh. We're named after him in that way. Us, the angels, and Yeshua. We all carry that family name. One way that I explain it to my children, and I've explained it in witnessing to others, and I'm not saying this is a one-to-one correlation, but it helps people to understand, 
is I use my surname or my family name. And that name is Jansen. My first name is Matthew. My last name is Jansen. All of my family is named Jansen. My wife is named Jansen. My three sons are named Jansen. My two daughters are named Jansen. But that doesn't mean that they don't have their individual names. Just because they carry with them a family name doesn't mean that they don't have a personal name. And it's the same way with Yeshua. Yeshua carries with him the family name of Yahweh. Matthew carries with him the family name of Yahweh. But that doesn't mean you cannot call me Matthew and you cannot call the Messiah Yeshua. Let's try to get one more text in here before we close out this evening. That text is Philippians 2, 9 through 11. And this is another text used by oneness proponents or one name proponents because it states that the Almighty, the Father, gave to the Messiah the name above every name. And they reason that the name which is above every name has to be Yahweh. Therefore, the Messiah's name must be Yahweh since he was given the name above every name. Now, the first thing that we need to notice in this text is what it actually says. Once again, we do not want to interpret a text by what we're already thinking in the back of our mind. Let's read what the text says first and then arrive at the meaning based upon what it actually says. I know that seems simple, but it's very profound. The text says here that at the name of Yeshua, every knee will bow and that every tongue will confess that Yeshua is the master to the glory of Elohim or Yahweh the Father. That's what the text says. Every knee will bow at the name of Yeshua. Now, let's dissect it more and determine the proper meaning based upon what is said in the text. Philippians 2 is a string of chronological occurrences in the Messiah's life. And Paul begins this string in verse 5. When he says that we should let this mind, he's speaking to the congregation there in Philippi. That's why the book is named Philippians. He says that we should let this mind, which is the mind of humility, Philippians 2, 1 through 4, let the mind be in us, which was also in the Messiah, Yeshua. So Paul is talking about Yeshua as a man, or Yeshua as the Messiah. He's talking about the historical person, the mind inside of the historical person as a grown man when he grew up and began his ministry. Let the mind be in you, Philippians, that was in Yeshua as a man. Now, Paul then goes on to talk about how that Yeshua as a man did not seek to grasp at an equality with Yahweh New American Standard Bible puts it very nicely. He did not seek to grasp at an equality with Yahweh, but he emptied himself and made himself of no reputation, taking upon himself the form of a slave, even though he was in the form of the Almighty or the form of Elohim. The English Bible will say the form of God. Paul finishes speaking of Yeshua's humility by saying that he, Yeshua, humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And it was for this reason that the Almighty highly exalted him. And my point is to recognize that the exaltation and the name above every name comes after 
the death on the cross. Not before. Yahweh honored and exalted Yeshua because of the life of humility that Yeshua had, which was mostly seen in when he humbled himself in the death on the cross by execution. Now this should let us know that the name above every name here is more than just the letters of a name. Yeshua was given his personal proper name before he was ever born in Matthew 121. This name in Philippians 2, this name above every name that's given to him by Father Yahweh was given to him after his resurrection. There's a lot more to say, but we're out of time. I hope you join with me next week as we continue on this important subject. I love you, and Yahweh bless you. You've been listening to the Ministers of the New Covenant radio broadcast. Our website is ministersnewcovenant.org. That's ministersnewcovenant.org. Please visit our website where you will find hundreds of audio sermons as well as videos, books, and articles explaining various doctrines in the scriptural faith. For questions, you can also call 678-347-6240. That's 678-347-6240. Thanks for listening, and according to His will, may Yahweh richly bless.